Have you ever found yourself struggling to understand or get along with people who are older or younger than you? Maybe it's just a clash in communication style, a difference in working preferences, belief systems, values or motivational needs. Many of the business leaders that we talk to often tell us how difficult they find driving higher levels of motivation and engagement from younger sales teams. They say that age is just a number, except it isn't, is it? Generational differences are real. The nuances of dealing with people across the generations can prove to be challenging, whether consciously or unconsciously, and the solution as we talked about so many times on Camcast, is in the ability to raise your awareness, understand yourself, understand others, and then choose if you want to adapt your behaviours to get the best out of your relationship interactions, whether it be with your teams or with your key customer contacts. Whether you're working closely with the external customer base or whether you recognize your internal customers on your team and colleagues across the business, you're likely to come up against the generation gap, highlighted by the notable differences across the different age groups. Well, on today's episode of Camcast, I talked to Henry Rose Lee, one of the few intergenerational diversity experts. Known as the Generation Game Changer, Henry works with all generations in the workforce, particularly with Millennials and Generation Z, to help them become more productive and effective. Her expertise comes from 15 years working in business development and sales organisations where performance and results were essential. For the last 17 years, Henry has worked as a consultant and a master coach, researching and developing diagnostic tools on human motivation and generational attitudes and behaviour at work. She's the author of three books on maximizing today's young talent consisting of Generation Z and the millennial generation, and she busts the myths and provides practical hacks for attracting, recruiting, engaging, and retaining your youngest employees. When we spoke, I was keen to get a deeper understanding of the differences across generations, how those differences play out in the workplace, particularly in a virtual working environment, how communication styles, techniques and strategies will vary across the ages and where clashes are likely to happen, and how, as leaders, we can drive higher levels of motivation and engagement from our younger teams, ultimately understanding how we can mind the gap in generational diversity across our key accounts and sales teams. Welcome to Camcast. I'm your host, David Ventura, a key account management consultant at camguru.com. In this podcast, we explore the strategies, systems, and skills you need for effective key account management. We talk to expert guests and business leaders, sharing the tips, tactics, and techniques for looking after your most important customers. This is Key Account Management Made Easy. So, Henry, thank you so much for joining us today on Camcast. It's great to see you. I'm really, really excited to sort of get stuck into this really, really big topic. Because if you think about key account management, for me, we're really talking about people working with people to build profitable partnerships between two organizations. And like anything, people is often where the challenge sits. And I think understanding people, understanding the different styles, understanding the different preferences can be hugely beneficial within that dynamic. So we're talking today about the intergenerational differences, styles and preferences. Do you want to start perhaps, Henry, by giving us an overview of 
the different generations and, and what they might look like, feel like, sound like at that sort of level. Certainly. And thank you very much for having me. It's wonderful to be here. And you're absolutely right about the topic. I could keep you imprisoned for a week talking about intergenerational diversity and inclusion and performance. But basically, if you think about it, there are around five generations in any workforce today, whether that's virtual or you know, if it's ever going to happen again, bricks and mortar. The oldest generations that we're likely to find are the Queen's generation. So in some family businesses, you might find across various countries in the world, you'll have people who are known as the silent generation, and they're aged today between 76 and 96. The Queen is in her 90s, so she's one of the silent generation in the silent firm. And uh, those are people very stiff up a lip, believe in authority. They believe in power and influence. The boss is always right. If he or she, well, it's usually he at that time, says jump, you say how high. Very good social and communication skills, excellent work ethic. Um, they worked because they had to work, otherwise they had no money and couldn't eat. So they worked to live. Next generation down is baby boomers. Um, baby boomers are aged today roughly between 57 and 75. And they're known as baby boomers because after the Second World War, there was a huge spurt in birth rate. Apparently, if you go to war, you come home and make babies. Those are the rules. <laughs> Oh, and by the way, if you win at sport, you come home and make babies as well. So in the UK, in 2012, we had the Paralympics and we had the Olympics. And in 2013, there was this massive spurt in birth rate, but just for one year. So, you know, celebrations of all kinds. So those are baby boomers. And they also have the same uh, work ethic. And um, there are people like Tim Berners-Lee, who invented the World Wide Web, uh, Madonna, uh, Oprah Winfrey, um, the Microsoft guy, Bill Gates. And these are people who, again, have an excellent work ethic, excellent communication and social skills, that sense of, you know, shiny shoes, um, you know, believe in leadership and authority, but also really benefiting from the new technologies that came out of the Second World War, because that's another thing that war does. It brings babies, but it brings innovation. Mm. And so, in fact, Baby Boom has invented youth culture. Don't tell young people they'll think I'm lying, but it's true. They did. <laughs> So they are kind like of the just first all thing. all young people now switching off. Is that what happened? <laughs> yeah, they're all kind of like that's not true. But technologically, because textiles, manufacturing, construction, advancements in in all kinds of IT, software and hardware, meant that the baby boomers got into the workplace, but with different clothing. They didn't look like mini me, like their grandparents and their parents. And they started to think about different things. We start to see a shift in workplaces and in work ideas. And then the generation after that is known as Generation X. And I need to apologize to all Generation X who are watching because you're named after a book that really trashed you when you were young. It's called Generation X. That's how you get your name. And uh, it was a, a book by Douglas Coupland, uh, written in 1991. Um, all generations are named after they've started to exist. And this book basically said young people are feckless, no respect, don't like work, don't want a career, they're very rude. Is this ringing a bell for anybody who's a millennial or a Gen Z? Mm. Apparently this proves that in generational theory, every older generation thinks the next generation isn't as good or as lazy and feckless. Mind you, every young generation thinks the older generation doesn't know anything about sex, drugs, rock and roll. Certainly doesn't have sex. You know, I mean, those are things, you know, doesn't like music. So anyway, your poor Generation X, they're aged 41 to 55 today. And they are absolutely a bridge between the bigger, older generations and the bigger, younger generations, because Generation X is actually the smallest generation statistically in the world. 
And that's because divorce, increased contraception, more women working meant that there were fewer children. So um, just in between 1965 and 1980, the birth rate plummeted in nearly every country in the world. So poor Gen X, there's fewer of them, which means that they're very special, but don't tell them because they'll want a pay rise. <laughs> then after them comes millennials. And really, Gen X are the bridge between the older analog way of doing business and millennials and Gen Z and the modern digitized digital way of doing business. So Gen X are really the bridge between those generations. But by the time we get to millennials, we're getting a really new workforce. And that's because of technology. If you think about the changes in the last 20 years to technology, you realize that the workplace could never be the same. Not only have we become more paperless, not only have we added in computers and email and WhatsApp and Slack and Yammer and all of these softwares, but we've got social media. IBM invented the smartphone in 1992, but no one knows that because IBM didn't think it would work. So they put it to one side. But Steve Jobs was very good at stealing. I'm sorry, very good at borrowing things. <laughs> and he created the smartphone in 2007, 2008. We had the first apps. Social media was born. So if you think about it, in the last 15 years, the workplace has become flatter, paperless and digitized. And if that's how you work, you get into... Um, emoticons, emojis, tech speak, and you start to get underdeveloped social and communication skills. So it's not that our Gen X was the last generation to be able to present well in public or do a meeting or, or write a good letter. It's that those skills started to degrade when social media came in and we were doing a lot more instant hits of information. So it really has changed the workforce and that has also changed salespeople and the way that they connect. And it can have an impact when you've got younger generations trying to deal with older. When we move on to millennials, they really should have been called Generation Y because Generation X was the first labeling alphabetically. And after that, every single generation has had a letter. So you've got X, Y, Z and A. Our youngest generation today, they're not even in the workplace called Generation Alpha. Uh, we won't talk about them except, you know, maybe you can have me come on another podcast where I tell you how not to tell, kill your children or eat them um, because they're <laughs> difficult, these Generation Alphas. They're very, very bright. I, I, very, I have a couple of them myself and then they are incredibly difficult. Easy. Yeah, not easy at all. Lovable, can't eat a whole one, not allowed to kill them, but <laughs> difficult. So here we are at Millennials who should have been called Generation Y. But the people who invented generational theory, because it is a theory, the clues in the title theory, they said that they wanted to call this generation millennials. They were born between 1981 and 1997, so not even in the millennium. But Strauss and Howe, who were the first generational specialists, if you like, they said, well, these millennials are going to hit society and start earning money across the year 2000, so we're going to call them millennials. Otherwise, they're called Gen Y, and they're the first sort of digital, really technological workforce that we've had. Moving on to Gen Z, what can I say about them? They're millennials on steroids. They're born between 1997 and 2009. They're the most entrepreneurial and computer geeky um, generation we've ever had. And when I say entrepreneurial, I mean that they've seen people making business online. They've watched podcasts like this one. They've seen TikTok and YouTube and, you know, they play Fortnite and other games. And they are really working their way towards thinking that everything can be done online. Now, we know that's not true, but there is a lot of a move towards the world being online. And so they often think about the fact that they're going to set up their own business and they're going to make money online, which doesn't really land with them having a career in an organization being a salesperson. So there is that disconnect for Generation Z, the most entrepreneurial generation we've ever had due to their connection with social media and seeing what happens there. 
but not trained about it at all. So that's that's the youngest generation that's in the workforce today. So Generation Z would be aged today between 12 to 24. And obviously, it's the 16 to 24 brigade of that generation who are actually in the workplace. As you can see, this is a big topic. Camcast, key account management made easy. I've got so many questions off the back of what you just said. Let me start with the most recent, because I guess that's how my brain is working right now. So, you know, you're talking about the social media and the and the online working and having entrepreneurial ideas with online businesses being on sort of steroids for the Gen Zs. Do you think that's been exacerbated in the last 12 months? Because, of course, we've had so many people forced to be at home. And a lot of those people may as well have been on furlough where they're getting, you know, 80% of their wage for sitting out home and thinking, well, whilst I'm being paid to sit at home, maybe I can look at some of those passion projects and those tech things that I might want to do. And maybe I'm going to be the next Zuckerberg. Uh, is, have you seen that exacerbated in the last 12 months? Yes, I have. I think two things are happening. First of all, for that youngest generation, Generation Z, who in the workforce is 16 to 24, they've been the most impacted by COVID um, in that they're the most, um, the largest generation to have lost their job. That's largest numbers, all been furloughed. And many of them were working in hospitality, leisure, travel, retail, bricks and mortar retail, really filled with these younger generational people. And therefore, they've been very negatively impacted. So, you know, they've struggled financially, but not only that, of course, they're spending their days online, aren't we all? And um, they have seen what other um, contemporaries and influencers are doing. And there are a couple of things which I found really fantastic. And that's that three quarters of any Generation Z who are interviewed would say, I'd love to start my own business, or I'm actively thinking about it. How many of them actually do is a very small percentage. So the yearning is there, but actually doing it is much harder. And of course, sustaining it, you and I know, running our own businesses, sustaining it is harder still. And so there has been this kind of yearning, this inspiration to do it, which hasn't necessarily been fulfilled. So it has increased. Before lockdown at March 2020 in the UK alone last year, probably about 2% of those who were respondents in the question, you know, do you want to start your own online business? Of 98% who said yes, they would, probably about 2% would have done it. Now, through COVID and into that we hope going to be the post-pandemic world, we're finding that it's about 10 to 15% of our youngest generation are now actively starting an online business. So it hasn't, you know, taken the world over, but it's gone up from about 2 to about 15%. That's interesting. That's interesting. I guess I should full disclosure here. I'm a millennial. And I guess, and I've said this to you uh, before, just before we started our interview today, that I think I started off as a as a millennial denier, uh, in a in a sense that all of these negative negative connotations about millennials, you know, that that we were work shy and uh, feckless and all of that stuff that you just said, I thought, well, I don't want to be associated with that, so I'm just going to say I'm not a millennial. And um, and there did seem to be at some point varying different reports around the age brackets and the and the years, and it was wasn't until a bit later for me that I that I, I it's like Alcoholics Anonymous you know uh, my name's David and I'm a millennial and and I became much more comfortable with it 
And almost now I'm, I'm on the side of the millennials who want to challenge that stereotype and say, actually, we just think differently. We work differently. We've grown up in a different era. And we've got a lot to bring to organizations. So when I think about the, the two big challenges, the intergenerational challenges within organizations, one is the workforce themselves and potentially battling against the stereotypes that are being projected upon them by their superiors and by the leadership teams. And then we've also got, I guess, guess, from a a customer relationship point of view, trying to understand potentially older generations, perhaps our C-suite exec board are not the same as us and we've got to communicate and work differently. Maybe let's start with the, the talent engagement. Let's start with how that works and how can we understand our younger teams uh, better and get more out of them? And particularly, I guess, in this remote working world where we can't see what they're doing and we can't be with them all the time. What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm happy to answer that question. There is one thing I'd like to say, and, and that is that generational theory is a theory. And so when I work with people or do podcasts like this, I label the hell out of things, but it's because it's a learning and insight environment. Mm. When we're actually dealing with older or younger people, we should not label them. We should not say, oh, you're such a baby boomer. You're such a Gen X or there goes a millennial. We should just ignore it and say, you're John, you're Tracy, you're Henry or whatever. And we should just treat people as people. Now that said, I'm going to park that because you know I work in intergenerational theory. We really believe that talent management is about a number of areas. And I think the first thing about talent management for our youngest generations is to recognize that there is no longer that golden thread of connection between older and younger workers that there used to be pre the digital age. So when we had an analog age with you know big office and lots of people, very clear hierarchy, lots of people in teams, everybody knew what they were doing. You would have your personal community, you know, your, your, your family and your friends at home. And then you'd go into work and you'd create a new community in the workplace. And so talent management was really about younger people looking at older people or more experienced individuals and saying, you know, what is it that I can learn from you? I'm going to respect you because you're the boss. You've got the stripes. You're kind of wearing the business uniform. And that's gone. That golden thread is no longer there. The community that our youngest talent has is in their home, of course, but their most important community is online. It's in their social media feed. That's not in the workplace. So talent management isn't the same now as looking at somebody who's more experienced and going, oh, well, you're the boss. I must respect you because that Mm. connection has kind of died out. So talent management has to be done in a way that encompasses everybody, but makes sure that it deals with our youngest generations in the most, shall we say, collaborative and empathic way, understanding how they feel about the fact that they're not so loyal to you anymore. They don't naturally build a community in the workforce anymore like like they used to. So back to talent management. There's a number of things that you can do. The first thing is around induction. Anybody who comes into the organization of any age in a sales team should get really good induction. And years ago when I was growing up, because I'm not a millennial, we used to spend a lot of time on induction and then it got shorter and shorter and shorter. And now it's like, tick this box, read this PDF, do some e-learning, tick the health and safety, watch this video, you're cooked. And I would expand induction and make it far more interesting in terms of the purpose of the organization, the culture. And I would explain to youngest generations, here's what good looks like, because you can no longer guarantee that they're going to watch and copy 
what's happening with older or more experienced generations of salespeople. They're just not going to do that. So they come into an organization, they don't know what good looks like. And sometimes they don't even know how to write a proper business email or a WhatsApp text that is appropriate for a senior, you know, 55-year-old pale male and stale, if we want to be rude, or just very much more senior individual. They don't know how to write to them. They don't know how to call them on the telephone. They don't know how to do a Zoom call with them or a WebEx or a BlueJeans. Other platforms are available. (laughs) They don't know how to do this. So it's showing them what good looks like. And it's making them understand that they are valuable inside the organization. And I think when you do those two first things, that kind of celebration of your value and your significance, here's how you make a difference. And if you really explain what good looks like, it's not a negative, it's a positive. And if you do it in the honeymoon period of induction and onboarding, it's going to happen. Now, you might say to me, well, hang on a minute. We've got lots of salespeople in our organization. They're pretty young and we're just about reintroducing them back into hybrid workforce post-COVID, or we're continuing to do remote work. How do we manage that talent? Well, I would say you can manage it in three ways. And these three ways will be really good for all generations, but particularly for your youngest talent. First thing is community. Create much more community. So you start to rebuild or build even for the first time that sense of belonging between me sitting at home doing my sales job and you, the boss, in your organization, but sitting in another place, we never get to see each other. So it's about building a community, which means lots of communications that can be short and sweet, lots of transparency, and lots of opportunities for the individual to get feedback, coaching, mentoring, and also reverse mentoring. That's when younger, less experienced generations mentor older, more experienced generations. What in? Well, it could be the client base who are younger nowadays than ever. It could be different ways of marketing. It could be different things that brands are doing that these younger generations are seeing. It could be technology. It could be digitization. There is always something that somebody younger can teach us. I know this to be a fact because I can't run anything on my iPhone without my youngest daughter showing me how to do it. So there's a benefit there from a youngest generation to begin with. So that's that's the first thing, really start to build a community. Second thing is to really big up that sense of cause. Every organization has got a vision, a mission, a direction, but that cause, why we're doing what we're doing, why it's so important is very powerful for winning over younger generations. If they just think they're selling something like an object, it doesn't mean anything. But if they think that object can help the world or change the world or make the world a better place, something they can be proud of makes them feel far more connected. And when they feel more connected, they are more productive. And when they're more productive, they perform better. And the third thing after community and cause is career. Our youngest generations are a bit of a confusion because they love technology, but they adore things face to face. They want a career, but they're highly entrepreneurial. But what you can do is create that sense of career progress inside your organization, even if none exists. So some of the things I say to people, and these are just some ideas, is you could create a kind of roadmap which any salesperson could get on, but it would lead to different destinations. So they don't all have to be created equal and do the same thing. Because frankly, human nature is not created equal. We can't all do the same thing. So if you imagine either a journey with lots of different destinations, perhaps it might be an underground map where you are here and you could go to different places. That might be a way to look at career progress. And it could be things like ladder. So ladder is a conventional hierarchical progress. Start at the bottom, work your way up to the top doesn't always happen. It could be lattice where you're not about to be, you know, the big sales director or VP, but you've got different things that you can do. And that might mean secondments or placements 
or working with different clients or working with different people inside the organization, you know, create that sense of energy and progress. And the third career progress could be projects, innovation projects, themed projects like quality, customer experience, um, you know, reducing inaccuracies, saving money. It could be also a broken windows project. You know, broken windows are literally based on theory from the 1980s that said if there's litter and broken windows in an environment, people will treat it with disgust and scorn and they'll treat it even worse and they might even have bad behaviours around it. And it's the same in an organisation. Every organisation, even ours, has got something that's not working, a system, a process, a relationship that's not working. So that's a business broken window and a lovely project for a salesperson that maybe is doing well but is never going to hit the big time either because there's no opportunity or because they're just not the right kind of person. They can be given a project that's a broken window around sales process or getting that client back or bringing that deal or improving negotiation or training or product champion, anything. They can do so many things, which gives them a real sense of purpose and drives that sense of cause, you know, really making things better and, you know, better for everyone. So these are just a few things. Um, Another couple of ideas are around rotations. I love a rotation. So I have some clients that do this. Here I am, a salesperson, and I'm doing okay, but I'm not the best salesperson. I'm really not going to go anywhere, but I'm a good solid round peg in a round hole. But, you know, the boss is starting to see that I'm getting twitchy. You know, I don't really know whether I'm going to stay here a bit bored. And one of the things the boss says, right, I'm going to rotate you into a role so that for three months, you're going to be a sales coach. And you're going to coach on deals, research on deals, back people up, shadow people, observe people. Or I'm going to make you a sales supervisor. So you're going to be slightly outside of the team, looking back in with a different lens about how are things being managed? Who's doing what? You're like a sort of form of deal support, sales training, all sorts of things. And it's just taking that individual and giving them another lens. And it can work for any generation, but particularly good for either older generations that are really jaded or the younger generations that don't have a huge amount of progress available to them, but need that kind of spark and momentum added. So you rotate them out for a few months, then rotate them back and give someone else a job. It gives a real sense of perspective and energy and progress without you actually having to pay more money, having to promote and so on. So those are just some of the things that you can do with talent management. Like I said, I could keep you here all week. (laughs) There's so many questions I have off the back of that. But I think one of the themes that I'm liking the most is this sort of pragmatic approach to dealing with some of the ideologies actually that exist for us. So so I think it's very idealistic to have to want and need a just cause to want to be part of something that's bigger and that, that makes the world a better place and yet for some of us we are just selling you know plastic boxes or you know widgets or you know some some of our organizations are let's face it a little bit dull so to try and cater for that in a very pragmatic way i think is really really important and you know much like you said there with with career progression you know i know from from my own experience back in the day when i was employed by organizations i always wanted career progression i always wanted to sort of nudge the chief exec off of his chair and take over um so that i could build my own empire and change the world from within but um but i knew that that wasn't always possible And if it was possible, it might take me several decades to get there because 
the chief exec wasn't going anywhere anytime soon. So I think it is really important to have these rather pragmatic things in place. Talk about community again, though, because that's, I think, one of the challenges when we're managing younger generations and perhaps not so in tune with the technology ourselves. So in this remote world of working where our community and our team of people are not in front of us, they're not in the office, we can't just, you know, have um, a roundtable or a, a town hall meeting or, you know, in the boardroom, everyone jump in, we're going to discuss stuff and create that community and have the social aspect. You know, how can we uh, encourage those that are not as connected with technology to utilize technology to really build on that community a bit a bit more? Well, I think one of the things that could happen is one-on-ones. So let's imagine somebody of any age who is not very technologically advanced. They don't really enjoy video conferencing. They tend to be passive and sit in the background and never speak. I would have their manager do a one-to-one with them, try and find out what the issues are and maybe give them a buddy who would train them quietly on how to use the system. And I think that that's a compassionate thing to do when it is not just you know a digital or video conference system but a sales process that if people are really struggling you know give them a buddy or a mentor or somebody who can really help them without them being ashamed or shamed in public um i think that's a very important thing to do i think the other thing is that good communications and collaboration also create that sense of belonging and that motivation to get involved so i think it has to start at the top So a sales leader has to be a role model for transparent behavior and they have to be curious and interested. And I think they can do it in a number of ways. So one of the things that they can do is hold a session where they say, it's not mandatory, but I'll hold it every four weeks or six weeks or whatever. Anybody can join and you can ask me any question you want as long as it's not inappropriate. I'm not going to talk about my sex life. And as long as it's not legally you know, protected so that it's sensitive and I can't talk about it. And you'll find that lots of people really like Ask Me Anything sessions because sometimes they get to hear the thing that they wanted to ask but didn't dare. Mm. And so those are quite good sessions. I think also the sales leader can be very good on their one-to-one sessions, checking in, not checking up. So again, that they can encourage people to feel that they're not being looked down on or, you know, I can't see you, so you're not working, but more kind of like, what have you been doing today? What's working? What's not working? Really good questions are, what have you experienced in the last week that's been good and bad? Second question is, of those good and bad things, what do you think you've learned from that? And the third question is, how are you going to use what you've learned going forward? And for any salesperson at any level, there's going to be something that was good news or bad. And I think a good sales leader just gently putting that responsibility back on the individual and just regularly checking in with them um, is useful. And a final question from a leader could be, you know, what do you need from me? And that can be a good coaching conversation if the individual salesperson is saying, you know, I need you to sort this for me. And the leader's thinking, no, you don't. You need to sort this out yourself. But it's a good starting point. What do you need from me? Or how can I help? Just to get that conversation going. So I I think those things can happen. I think the other thing I really love is putting co-workers together because it forces them to take action. So collaboration might be that you and I are put on a team together. We might be different ages. We might be different backgrounds. We might have different abilities. You might be more experienced in sales than I am, but actually putting us together on a client account and going, you're on this together. Uh, if we win the deal, you both get sharings of it. That That is really interesting. And I call it the dream team because when it works, Not only do you get good perspectives, but you often get people who start to join at the hip. They start to work out what they're good at, what Mm. one is good at, what the other one is good at, and how they can both work 
towards getting that deal. And it can be incredibly lonely being a salesperson, don't you think? Mm. You know, when you're trying to negotiate and you're in the deal on your own and there's like a phalanx, you know, a bus of, of client people at you and there's just you and maybe a financial person or you on your own. Mm. When you put people together and get them to collaborate on projects, on deals, on shadowing, I think it can be really powerful. Yeah, we. I mean, we really hold the belief here that key account management, in particular, is a team sport. It's not a lone ranger activity. So the more you can pull upon each other's skill sets, the better the output is going to be. Camcast, key account management made easy. Circling back around to what you were saying, I love the sort of check in, don't check up. And actually... There is often, particularly within sales teams, a lack of trust in salespeople, particularly salespeople that are, you know, in normal times, they're out and about, they're repping, they're on the road, we can't see them. What have you noticed, I guess, across the last 12 months? And what do you see going forward in the changes in the trust dynamic between managers and their teams? The thing that I noticed in the first 12 months was that the original KPIs and objectives that we had before lockdown don't necessarily work anymore because you can't see the people in front of you. So I worked with a lot of sales leaders to create OKRs, so objectives and key results. And we gave people timeframes so that it was a period when they could go away and do things without feeling that they were being micromanaged. But then they had to uh, report back at the end of the time period and there was there was coaching in between. So I think that was one way to, to um, you know, produce or engender some level of trust. Trust starts at the top. So that ask me anything from the sales leader was a way to show trust. I'm going to be transparent. I'm going to share with you my failings, my successes, and so on. And um, a trustworthy leader is often the one that's the most open and curious and interested in other people. A couple of other things I got teams to do, and again, the leader had to do it as well, which really helped to build trust, was I got them to call a friend. Now, call a friend is a client that you know and love, and they always buy from you. Even if they haven't bought in the recent times, they love you. And you go to them and you say, what's been happening? And so you hear about their COVID experience, their pandemic experience, their business experience. Perfect opportunity. And you use that to create a project called Call an Enemy. And the enemy is the client that hates you and won't do business with you. And when I got teams having done the call a friend and found lots of interesting stuff, and it was quite productive to then go and call an enemy – To begin with, they had some information that they got from call a friend that they could use. And when they were calling the so-called enemy, I had warned them they would get trashed by them. They would be bad mouthed by them. They wouldn't necessarily get a sale. But it's a marvelous muscle building exercise to use what you've learned elsewhere and just try it out on call an enemy. Mm. And um, or call a stranger. But it's not cold calling. It's people who hate you. It's it's a really good thing. And I found that when teams did that, the trust that got built was huge because it was painful for everyone. It wasn't good for the leader. You know, the leader had to start it and call somebody and be bad-mouthed after they'd done the call a friend. And other things I did was getting different people to shadow one another. So they would sit on a call like this and they would say nothing, but they would observe And then afterwards, they would coach and say, this is what I found. This is what you did that was great. This is what I didn't understand. What did that bit mean? And even the leader had to do that. So people had to see him or her, you know, being beaten up or, you know, having some success or saying something amazing that everybody was thinking, I'm having that. So I think that's the way to build trust. I am pragmatic. Mm. I am practical. And I think the best ways to get your hands dirty, get your feet dirty, get jump in, hold hands and jump together. 
Yeah, it's the it's the vulnerability based trust, isn't it? It's uh, to the ability to be vulnerable totally changes the dynamic and allows everyone to be truthful and and trustworthy. Let's flip it now and look at uh, I guess our relationships with our clients, and particularly, you know, if I think about some of the younger account managers that might be listening to this, you know, maybe they are Gen Z themselves, maybe they're millennials, and they are calling into C suite executives who might be Gen X or baby boomers. What do you think the sort of, you know, the reverse of what we've just talked about? How do the younger generations need to adapt their style and communication to get the best out of an interaction with someone from an older generation? I appreciate we're doing what we shouldn't do, which is label, but but let's label. (laughs) Yeah, we're labeling because it's a learning environment. So we're (laughs) good to go. It's absolutely fine. I will give you an example. There was a very famous brand name of credit card with those customers that have the black credit card. You know, the one where you call the number and just like everything happens for you. Mm -hmm. And I discovered that these very rich, usually older clients were being serviced by the youngest generations who would ring and go, hello, mate, you're right. And that really did not land well. Yeah, that's going to rub them up the wrong way, isn't it? Yeah, checking in to see if you need anything, mate, or love or dear. So one of the things that's very important, I think, is in that learning environment of what does good look like is to really explain to the youngest generations what the difference is between older and younger generations and how the older generations grew up in an analog world where respect was uh, put in place, where people would ask if they could use your first name, where there would be a sort of formalized language. And it's very interesting because in English, we have the largest language in the world. Most people think it's Chinese. It's not. It's English. And we have enormous nuances of meaning, but language is very organic and it's changed. And in the UK, we've really struggled with our business language because it's quite mixed now. It has elements of business level um, language, particularly for legal and accounting purposes. But then it has this kind of chatty, all right, mate type of organic language that's also grown up. In other countries, there are still quite formalized business languages. For example, in France, if you speak, you know, normal French, you might say a few things like hello, mate, but business languages has remained unchanged. Mm -hmm. But in the UK, it's really, really changed. So it's teaching people about the language and it's explaining to them why. I think one of the biggest things that we do wrong when we train people is we tell them what to do. We tell them how to do it and who to do it with, but we don't tell them why. And if they really understand what's the reason for doing something in a different way, for behaving in this way, then they understand it. And in fact, accounting and legal firms do do this because it's so vital that they get the language right. They do lots of training around writing a good email, Mm -hmm. writing a good WhatsApp text, running a good telephone call, running a good video conference meeting, you know, working out the few things that will build rapport at the start of the conversation, you know, how to create a peak ending so that it lands uh, on, on a final good note. It ends on a final good note. And all of that needs to be taught. And I found that when I've actually done that sales training, that afterwards our youngest generations have gone, I just didn't realize, you know, I wasn't meaning to be rude. I just didn't realize that actually they were expecting something else. So I think it is around training and coaching. And I think it is around showing people what does good look like. Do you think this is, I mean, I'm listening to this and thinking this should be packaged and rolled out as a syllabus within schools, because actually a lot of what we're doing in business is having to reteach 
or teach from scratch stuff that people just don't know you know that i didn't realize is quite a common answer i imagine is, is this not something that should be or is it covered in in schools what, what what's your experience of early education with that uh, it's not covered in schools give them a break it's um, you know, <laughs> sorry i'm no- i'm loading up yeah. with more things to learn that's my fault yeah yeah it's there's a lot that they have to do i, I think there's two problems when schools are coming to the end of their the work that they do so you know the, their pupils are sort of 17 18 careers guidance is still very poor in this country Um, It's better in other countries, uh, but particularly across the UK and the rest of Europe, it's not particularly good. What I think it has fallen to is the fact that employers who bring in their youngest talent have a job to do to sort of teach a new language, teach a new way of writing, explain why these things need to be done. And I think it falls to them to do it. I'm not sure that we're set up to do anything else. There is one thing that happens in further education, and that's that if people are doing a business degree or a business with psychology, HNC, HND, you know, there are things or apprenticeships where they talk about dealing with clients or NVQs, those do deal with customer management. They do deal with the language. They do deal with writing communications and contracts and things like that. But those are very specific courses. So yes, it falls to organizations to do it. But having said that, I found that a lot of organizations, when they've taken their youngest talent, say at 16, 17, and they've decided that they will create a module for what good looks like in terms of dealing with customers, speaking to them, writing to them, and so on, they've been far more successful because they've actually taught them a language. And if you're very, very young and you're taught a language, how quickly can you pick it up? Very quickly. Mm. So it's not been a heartache. It's not been too difficult to do. But most organizations don't even realize they have to do it. Mm. And it's hugely, hugely beneficial. I think in any organization, if you can really support your teams to understand other people, understand themselves, and then be able to flex and adapt their behaviors and their styles to better interact with them, that can only end in one way. And that's a a much more positive result. This is a huge, huge topic. And and we're rapidly running out of time. I I wonder if I could ask you to, you know, thinking of our listeners, and we will have some listeners who are key account management professionals themselves, and they're working with customers. And then we'll have some listeners who are the leaders of those teams and looking to manage those guys and and girls in in the best way. What would your sort of, when it comes to intergenerational differences and managing that, what what, what are your top three tips that you, you would give those people? I think the top three tips are this. The first one is money matters. It matters to all of us, but for our youngest generations, they have the least money and the least savings, the fewest savings, and they're the most vulnerable. So pay what you can pay. And if you can't pay the same as your competition around the corner, add in things that make your offer look more exciting. I know this sounds like a fairly bald thing to say, but it is a key point. So how do you make things more exciting if you can't match pay or salary or bonus? Learning and development, because especially for the youngest generations, it's currency. They want to know they're going to learn and develop career progression and also projects. And here's a little tip. If you offer more days off than your competition, you'll find that your youngest generations really like you for that. Even a couple of days off more a year make a difference. Mm. So I think that's the first thing. I think the second thing is collaborate. Make sure that you're not making people feel that they are alone or isolated. Well, it's not that you're making them feel it, but but that you're you know continuing that sense of isolation. Make sure that you do your best to connect people. And I often say to both sales leaders and also to sales team members, 
don't wait. Ask to connect on things. Ask to collaborate. Create innovation projects inside the organization. And as you talked about, you know, a key account deal team, that I think is a very key way to get people feeling that they're all in this together. Because I think there's nothing wrong with working on something together. We don't all have to be perfect. So I think collaboration is really, really vital. I think the last thing I'd say is, we all, if we're lucky and we're not adopted or fostered, we've come from some kind of family. So we had grandparents and parents and aunts and uncles and children and grandchildren. So a family is made up of lots of different ages and generations and an organisation should be too. And I think it's useful to have those different perspectives. Those are part of diversity and inclusion. So often we think about gender, you know, uh, or orientation or ethnicity but age is also an important consideration and it's good when you have a family working together of different ages because that can help you with clients who are usually some older some younger it's not all one or the other nowadays sometimes but but rarely so think about your business as a family think about your team as a family what would you do for them you'd celebrate their birthdays you'd celebrate their successes you'd be there for them you'd connect with them regularly you'd collaborate you would look for ways to catch them doing things right and you'd help to teach them to be the next generation because your youngest generations are your lifeblood and they are the future and your older generations are growing in emotional intelligence and in wisdom there there's a lot of gold in them their gray hairs so that's what i'd suggest I love it. And I like the the tone coming through there that I believe the children are the future. I can feel a song coming on. Uh, so, uh, Henry, thank you so much for sharing some real wisdom with us today on, on a really interesting topic. If any of our listeners want to find out more about this and find out more about you, how can they do that? I never remember my website at all. So I'm hoping you're going to put it on a link. I just say to people, Google Henry Rose Lee. So that's my full name. And it usually comes up with my website and LinkedIn and all of those things. So Henry Rose Lee on LinkedIn and Henry Rose Lee on Google, you should be able to find me. And we will definitely put a link to your website on the show notes, which you can check out at camguru.com forward slash podcast. So Henry, thank you so much for being our guest today on Camcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a blast. Thank you. Some really pragmatic and practical advice there from Henry Rose Lee, who helps us look through the intergenerational lens from a position of understanding. I wonder how you feel about the way that you're currently managing the generation gaps on your teams and with your most important customers. Do you know which generation you yourself fall into? Do the theories that we've talked about today resonate with you? And how do you feel about them? What have you learned about yourself and the people that you work with and perhaps your customer contacts? I particularly liked Henry's thoughts on engaging the motivational needs of younger talent on our teams. With three quarters of Generation Z yearning to start their own business, I wonder if you have a team of entrepreneurial salespeople and how you harness their enthusiasm and creativity within the remits of your organizational structure. Do you build a community that your talent can feel part of? What are the causes that you, your team and your business care about? And what career progression opportunities are available to your team to grow and develop in their role and bring higher levels of commitment, enthusiasm and contribution to your business? I'm often amazed at the lack of trust between sales leaders and their teams. 
Henry gave us some great advice on how to build trust. And I love the notion of checking in with your team, not checking up on them. Coaching your team with questions like, what have you experienced in the last week that's both good and bad? Of those good and bad things, what do you think you've learned from those? How are you going to use what you've learned going forward? And what do you need from me? When it comes to young talent, I find it so important to recognize that money really does matter. The youngest generations have the least money and the least savings. So we as a business need to find ways to pay them right and take the worry of financial pressures off the table. Perhaps this will earn their focus, their loyalty and their commitment. For me, money really is a hygiene factor and too many sales organizations use it as a motivational tool designed to encourage salespeople to try harder. In my experience, money neither motivates the best people or the best in people. And I'll be looking at this topic in more detail in a later episode on Camcast. You can find out more about Henry and her work on the show notes at camguru.com forward slash podcast. So that's a wrap on another episode of Camcast. Let us know what you thought and get in touch to join the conversation. Thank you for listening to this episode of Camcast, a podcast brought to you by camguru.com, one of the UK's leading key account management consulting and training organizations. If you like this episode, we'd really appreciate you sharing it with your connections, giving us a review on your chosen podcast app and letting us know what else you'd like to hear in an upcoming episode. You can find the show notes for this episode on the website at camguru.com forward slash podcast.